0: Hello, everyone. I'm Samantha Jane Smith.
1: And I'm Jacob Keynes. And you are listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. Welcome back to the Classical Queer Podcast. Uh, Today, we're very, very thrilled to be joined by Andrew Swords, violinist, uh, who's joining us from Cleveland in the States. Uh, And we're uh, very excited to listen to a few pieces. Uh, So, welcome, Andrew. Hello.
2: Good morning.
1: Um we uh, are very thrilled to have you. I don't think we've had a like a performing violinist in such a long time. It it's funny that the people we we end up chatting to is such a wide breadth of composers and writers and performers of all sorts and section players and soloists and things. But you're you're the first violinist in a long time.
2: Well, listen, violinists come armed with stories, so I'm sure there's no shortage of conversation <laughs> topics today.
1: <laughs> fantastic we're, we're quite thrilled so uh as we usually do with these podcasts can you just tell us a bit about uh your your story like uh, you as a violinist you as a person where did you grow up etc
2: sure i'm andrew i'm a gemini i like sushi long walks on the beach um yes as you said i'm a concert violinist and i spend about half the year on the road touring and i feel like the luckiest guy in the world i the gratitude to walk on stage and play these works by Brahms, Beethoven, Borchak, you know, if you had told me I would have been doing this at 14, I would have laughed in your face, but I feel very, very humbled. And I understand, Jacob, that you're from Canada. I spend the year in Canada. I just returned from performance in Toronto and there is so much going on up there, uh, north of the border that is enviable, I think. So uh, let's get that off. Of also, the maple syrup and the absinthe and the <laughs> Canadian bacon, of course. Um, yes. So, you know, when I'm on the road, I feel like I put this violinist cap and then I come home and you see me out in the gardens, with hydrangeas and the peonies and the horseshoe pit in the backyard.
1: Fantastic. So, and you grew up in Delaware. Is that right?
2: Well, I was born in Delaware. My parents met University of Delaware. And then they moved to Cleveland shortly after I was born. And we lived down the street from the world-famous Cleveland Orchestra. And Ooh, no. my grandparents were longtime members of the chorus. And so my violin lessons were Thursday afternoons, and then my grandmother would pick me up and take me to the orchestra. So at the age of 8, 9, 10, I get to see these luminaries come across the stage. Vladimir Ashkenazi,
3: Sakhova,
2: oh. Midori, Gilsham. And... I knew that it was something very exciting that I was with when, you know, a sold-out hall welcomes an artist on stage, and for 30 minutes, this artist is the liaison between composer and audience. There's nothing quite like it.
1: And what a joy to, to grow up listening to one of the, the kind of major American uh Pivot point orchestras, I mean, there's such a, such an incredible orchestra and especially uh, not to, I don't know your age, but like at that time, you know, that they've been doing amazing things for many, many years. But I'm sure when you were a kid, they were kind of at the height of, I mean, not that they're not at the height of what mm-hmm. they do now, but like they were really performing some phenomenal works with some phenomenal people. Mm-hmm. It really
2: is the Rolls Royce of American orchestra. Whenever I go and step into
3: those, the hallowed halls of Severance. I know that's something special. And, and they growing up, did you say that, by the way?
1: <laughs> yeah, fair. Did you, uh, I mean, growing, growing up and going, going to especially the, that orchestra, uh, do you think that instilled the love of, like, the, the classics, the greats, the, the big masterworks?
2: So it's funny that you say that because I would be sitting on pins and needles during the overture waiting for the concerto. I would be in awe of the concerto, and then I would be dozing during the but <laughs> of course when it comes to the Schumann, <laughs> Mendelssohn Brahms, Chasikovich Symphonies, there's nothing quite like it. And I remember my my grandmother had the Dachnani collection of the nine Beethoven, the Cleveland Orchestra. And she had a nicer sound system than my parents had. And so as a little boy, I put in one of the CDs, probably Beethoven 9, and I would crank the mm-hmm. volume. And somebody would call her house. And she would say, I know it sounds like there's a hundred-piece orchestra in my house, it's just my grandson. <laughs>
0: Oh I I mean, it's funny. I used to have um uh, one of these box sets from the um, Berlin Philharmonic when I was young, and these big box sets, and 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 exactly the same thing. I go to Beethoven's night, crank up the volume, and every all the neighbors would start complaining, and I'd be there pretending to conduct and wave around, and this kind of.
2: And how great to listen from a kid that it affects you that way. I remember blasting the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto in the coda at the end of the third movement got me so amped up I was literally bouncing off the walls I couldn't believe it. what I was hearing now of course you know you go to a Gaga concert or Beyonce concert and it's that same kind of feverish pitch but Evgeny Kissing came to Cleveland last year and he achieved mm. that feverish pitch I've never heard an audience mm. scream quite like they did for Mr. Kissing. and mm. may we never forget that may we never forget that
0: I mean, there is something about the maybe we'll talk go off a different tangent here, but there is something about um, particularly an orchestra. And, and when you've got the live acoustic instruments playing and, and that for me, that that just sounds so different and the dynamics of it to to. I mean, I, I love other types of music, but it's the whole dynamical sort of interaction with this on stage that is for me just sounds is so emotional and, and so different, I think.
2: You know, I tell the orchestras when I play with them how fortunate we are to spend 30 minutes together playing some of the most beautiful music ever written. And I may not know their name. I may not know where they were born, or we might not have even exchanged words, but when you look across the stage and you have smiles back and forth and you're sharing a melody with a French horn, you're sharing a melody with the cello section, and you're encouraging the violas, even though many conductors say never encourage the section. You know, <laughs> then then you really leave feeling the camaraderie the, the friendship that you can bring because i've i've gone to places in the world where I have no idea how to get by in whatever language speaking, mm-hmm. but then you start playing and everybody's on the same page
1: and it really is something for those people who have never been uh, a, a practicing musician it's something that is so almost impossible to explain how deep that connection happens and how fast it happens that you really can. Uh, not speak the language and and immediately have this instant rapport with people um and feel very deeply connected and feel very emotionally connected uh it's the wildest experience if if you've never experienced it as a musician for sure exactly um uh, sorry
0: can say, yeah. i mean one of the things just go back to something you mentioned a bit earlier um you, you talked about spending so much of your life on the road and, and how much of a, a privilege i think you said or something like that to be able to go and do this kind of thing and i was looking at how much traveling you do uh, i mean you know you were saying you know i saw in your bio you've you played for 300 orchestras on four continents and all the solo tours and all this i mean do you ever get the do you ever feel like oh, you know i really need to stop today i need to go back and this or or, or do you always get this kick every time you go on stage
2: I'll start with the latter part of your question first. I always get that kick when I go on stage. I can be jet lagged, I can be under the weather, uh, I can have had bad sushi, and yet when you hit the stage, you nothing else matters Because, you know, folks have bought tickets, they've made dinner reservations, they've hired babysitters, they've put on nice clothes. They're expecting an event, and you feel uh, a lot of responsibility. Now, you know, whenever I play recital, Sam, I tell the audience, I know that you have a choice what to do on Saturday night, and thank you for choosing to spend it here at a violin concert. Um, the other part, the airports, the airplanes, the delays, the traffic, the luggage, etc. No, no, that's not great. But then again, how <laughs> you know going to Australia as often as I have, it's it's a gift. It's this violin that is taking some of these far-reaching places so no that never gets old for me even when i think to myself i've been on the road a lot this- i've played a lot of shows this week and what
3: what's the alternative the alternative mm-hmm. is i could be behind the desk i could be doing something
0: it, you may. I'm, I'm so envious of that i mean it, it's kind of really nice that you you know and, and also what jacob said about this for a non-musician, I mean, my musical talent's are zero, as I keep telling people. To see, you know, uh, you know, people at rehearsal, or or when you see videos of it, who go in there, like yourself, and you suddenly connect with this orchestra. I, I think, is, as Jacob said, it's a feeling that I don't think uh, I could never understand how it how it actually works, because it is, from an outside view, it's so complicated business. It's well, it's you've got I mean, all these I mean, people.
2: It really is a bond. Just just like uh, if you're one of 1,000 in the audience, you've experienced something magical with everybody else in that room. And when I go to universities or schools and I talk about the power of music, I don't know anybody who gets in the car and doesn't turn on. TV. I don't know folks who clean their house without music or go to the gym without in their ear. You know, it's a daily part of our lives. It's like brushing our teeth. It is like the sustenance we need. It really is something that can connect us. You know, how many times have you gone to a wedding or a funeral? And the first thing you notice is the quality of the music. Is it somebody's great aunt singing Ave Maria? Or is it a guitar virtuoso playing one of the sonatas as as somebody walks? We all notice.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think it's also one of those things we don't we don't always see that with us. We don't always, uh, because music is such a part of the lives. You know, it's like in the film scores and this you know you, you you it works at such a level that you don't always know you're hearing music and it sounds a bit weird but it but it, it sets the scene and it does everything else behind it and if you don't have it the film's horrendous but you don't always listen i mean it's kind of weird it it's there as a background all the time which i think is is lovely really
3: we
1: have a few things to listen to and uh i know Sammy and i were both really excited about um your sources because I I live in new music world ninety-five percent of the time. Eighty percent of the time, maybe mm-hmm. not quite ninety five percent of the time. But um I have this deep love of all of the the masterworks. Of course, they're phenomenal. Uh, but I never get to talk about them and I never get to play them and I never get to conduct them as a conductor. Um just because of the nature of my my career. But uh I know we were both really excited by the selections you sent in because we haven't talked about uh Franck or uh Brahms in so long. We haven't talked about Shostakovich. Um, so maybe we'll start with the Franck because it's such a wonderful, wonderful piece of music. Um, and I think everybody has uh, a history with it, who knows it, experiences it. I remember the first time I heard it live. Um, but maybe you can tell us what it, what it means to you, why you sent it in, why why you wanted to play this one for us.
2: The Franck Sonata is a very endearing work for many One, it is the rare sonata that really has cycled. The first movement is as innocent as childhood. The second movement is stormy adolescence or young adulthood. The third movement is looking back on everything that one has experienced. And the fourth movement is wherever it is we go after we depart this mortal life. Um, And Frank got it exactly right. I mean, the four bars, the piano introduction at the beginning, it's like the four signs of the cross, and it was a wedding gift for the famed Belgian violin Eugenie Zai, who actually delayed his wedding by a few hours so that he could practice the pianist and premiere it <laughs> at the wedding. So it was not bridezilla; it was groomzilla. And <laughs> I've never gotten sick of this. Piece. First of all, it's a piano concerto, so it's very important that you have the right cohort on stage with you. I've got a two pound box of wood with four steel strings and the piano says 88 keys nine foot long instrument and so you know they can overpower you they can leave you in the dust so it really is quite quite the partnership and it's it's a long piece i think it's about 30 minutes or so and it takes a lot of endurance and every time i begin i think you know it's like the start of a race how do i pace myself and then you get to the third movement and you hear the intervals starting to expand, and here are the tunes starting to look backwards, and you think, gosh, this is the only place in the world I want to be right now.
1: Do you remember the first person you heard play it?
2: Oh, yeah, Suzanne Sophie Mütter.
1: I mean, what a a phenomenal one to to play it. That's great.
2: And I thought that the kaleidoscopic colors that she had and the rubati that she had, the fact that she could stretch, pull, and elongate, and speed up and slow down, and and it all worked, you know, it wasn't a drunken sailor singing along, it was a profound intellectual, yet you know, there was that George sall expression. I think she was thinking with her heart
3: and feeling mm. with her brain. Those coming together, yes, I've never forgotten.
0: Let, let me just, seeing you mentioned that, I mean, when you play, do you think you're? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of brain power involved in this. I don't want to make it sound like there isn't, but but does does the heart kind of take over when you're when you're playing and and you just go along with it and you just feel it and go? Is that how it works with you?
2: That's a good question. Sometimes the coffee takes over. Sometimes the mundane <laughs> tasks of the day take over. But it really is the fact that you talk about the brain power. It's an athletic event. It's your fingers going where you want them to go. It's the bow, speed, and weight proportion to uh, changing the bows and how fast the bow is moving and the sound production. There's a physics element to it. There's an athletic element to it. And then at the very end, there's the connection part. You know, everyone likes to say to me, oh my gosh, the violin sings. And oh my gosh, have you heard that cello sing? Well, yes, these string instruments duplicate the voice. But can the instrument actually and a really great mm-hmm. orator, you know somebody like a, a Barack Obama, or somebody that can leave a legendary message um, that's what you want. You really want to be able to convey something, and it's not always the bombast and the fortissimos. sometimes it's the whisper and mm-hmm. how many people do you know that can be very powerful and uh, when they're when they're speaking at the top of their voice and they're getting animated but i think about my grandmother who in the Sotto voce could command a room
0: yes i mean i think we've kind of talked about this before i think jacob where you know it, it's fine having the very the, the, the very loud and the very bombastic type of stuff but you have to have this other part with it as well it's you can't shout all the time it just it, sounds to
2: Explore awful. the software dynamics it's very interesting to see can i get the audience on the edge of their seat can i get them forward and of course, it depends on the audience um, interaction because sometimes, you know, you feel like they're far from you, and um, they're are they getting it? Are they uh, on the same page as me? Am I translating it the way I need to be? And then other times, you feel like you're wrong. So it's funny because you can't replicate it. I can do the same program three nights in a row with the same number of people, and you have no idea the chemistry. Mm. It's like you know, showing up for the first date. You've seen the the information, you've seen the pictures, but will you have that chemistry in person?
1: And that is the beautiful thing about uh, the like ephemerality of, of performance and the way it goes is entirely dependent on every collective mood that's in the room, and and it's the beautiful thing is. Uh, I mean, some of my my most favorite performances, either as an audience member or as a performer, are ones that the the mood is not right. Like, there is something really strange and weird about the whole thing. Um, And it's kind of a fantastic thing. I mean, it's not necessarily the nicest feeling as a performer, but it's interesting to analyze. It's interesting to, like, uh, have that feeling. There is never a
2: moment in this industry. You know, a string can break. The sheet music can be out of order. You know, the piano string can break. Uh, There could be a medical event in the audience all everything i just listed has happened you know of course there's a distraction of cell phones and audience noise but you never know you never know when you step on stage what is going to happen my colleagues and i love to say there is never a dull moment in this industry
0: i was at a a small concert some 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 years ago and, and a cell phone went off and the guy who was playing the piano just stopped and he went, he went, it's okay. Take your time. Just we'll, 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 wait for you. And then the guy was like, yeah. And he went through the thing and he said, he said, okay, let's, let's start again. Let's go again. And he went through the whole thing again. It was really good. He was, he was very good. He didn't get angry. He just went, let's, let's, let's do it again. So which I thought was great. We ought to listen to a piece of music though, because our listeners will now be saying we want to hear this Frank. So, so um, yeah, let's listen to it and then we can talk some more.
1: What a fantastic performance and i I love uh that you can hear in your performance everything that you talked about the um the moods and the narrative of that sonata that it does really take you through um quite a like connected story which is so like you say surprising for sonatas and especially um from that era like it's it's so interesting that this one actually does take you through the full story um what do you? What are you thinking about when you play it? Are you thinking about how to uh, prep the next bit? How are you How are you working through that story for the audience?
2: Well, Jacob, I might be thinking about the meal I'm gonna have after the concert, the martini, you know, will it be gin? Will it be a lemon drop? Do they have calamari backstage? No, um, that might be part of it. But it really is, I mean, if I've performed it 150 times or whatever, it's a combination of every time that I've stepped on stage with it, from the very first time, which I can remember back in 2006, to maybe the week before, maybe the night before. And without those experiences, you know, we are not the same person we were 17 years ago. We're not the same person we were last week. A lot has happened in our lives. Personal, a lot has happened with the the politics and worldviews. And we can we can go on and on with that. And as artists, I don't know if we need to shout from the stage our views on every last thing, but as artists, we do need to connect and level. And that is why, when major events happen, if if there's a national anthem performed, if there is a hymn, if there is a singer uniting everybody, um, it are put on this earth to make the world a little bit more beautiful. You know, I am not so naive to think that the world is going to come crashing to a halt on its axis every time a great performance happens. You know, the Franck was written in the 1880s, so years ago, and the performance, just one blip, just half an hour in history. So when you when you put it into perspective, it's a small deal. But to the audience
3: members who come out that evening, it could be a very big. I remember there was one size gave kinetic, and on the program was the Beethoven Kreutzer Sonata, and mm-hmm. really nicely dressed
2: came up after the concert, and she said, "Oh, I came out today because Beethoven."
3: I said, "Oh, it's wonderful, thank you." She said, "It really was cathartic for the." Thank you.
2: And she said, my son lost his life in the armed forces overseas. And this is the first time in months I can leave the house. Mm. And it 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 paralyzes you. And then you're on a plane with your pianist hours later. And you think it's so much bigger than the scales and the notes and the rehearsals and everything that we go. And at intermission, we think, oh, my gosh, more. We're kidding, of course. We We love the pieces on the program. But for this particular individual, it was the first time they left the house in month because of a Beethoven sonata. If
3: that doesn't show somebody the power of music, I don't know what other proof we need. Yeah, a great story. Yeah. You,
0: you said that um, you played this piece, I think you said 17 years ago, the first time you played it. I mean, how do you think you've changed as a musician in that time? I mean, if well, if you could look back I mean, at yourself and go, is is it? Are you are you really? I mean, is it changed so much that it's you can't compare? Or
2: well, I start on the same note and I finish on the same note, and it's more. We're more all in
0: different. the right order as well, right? Yes,
2: yes in the <laughs> right order, but of course, we aren't the same person. And I think. Uh, Wasn't there a psychologist that said every seven to 10 years, we are totally different people. And sometimes we grow together and sometimes folks grow apart. Uh, I was a kid. I didn't know anything about Mm -hmm. anything. I didn't know what this whole career entailed. You know, I thought that if you look cute and sounding good, that was all you needed. Um, And then you get all these performances under your belt and you have these mentors, you know, that have been doing it longer than live. My pianists are typically at least a generation older than, and they've been playing these Mm.
4: all
2: these years. Um, And it's fascinating to learn from folks who've done it. Now, of course, they're welcoming, I hope, my views on the piece, but I'm old fashioned. I think, you know, when you listen to your elders, you learn something. And I'm not calling them elderly for anyone listening. No.
0: No. That's no, fine, that's good. Just be careful. Yes. I, I thought it was funny when you said you listened to Ashkenazi, you saw Ashkenazi at eight. And I was like I was like, no, I can't tell do not tell you how old I was when I saw Ashkenazi. So yeah. Uh so maybe we ought to move on to a, to another piece. Um oh. shall we talk about the Brahms? Because uh, this is one of my favorite pieces, so favourite piece of violin. So so tell us about the Brahms. It's one of his Hungarian dances.
2: So Mr. Brahms wrote 21 Hungarian Dance," and the publisher Simrock had wanted encore-type bonbon uh, vignettes, and he responded with tunes that a century later, maybe Madonna or Prince would have, you know, been able to go into the recording studio with. They never get old. They this fascination that Brahms and Bartok and others had with
3: the Eastern European theme. the music of the Roma, the music of uh, Hungarian villages that they heard,
2: the recognizable intervals with the augmented seconds, what we might refer to as gypsy music, the Spanish flair of Sarasate, the uh, Romanian flair of Inescu. And I have probably performed four or five of the dances. Not all of them are my favorite, but of course one, Five, six, seven. And five might be the most recognized. And sometimes it's fun after you have a steak and potatoes to have some to have some chocolate, to have some whipped cream. And this is what it is. It really provides something for the audience that is not a course. And I believe the performance you're going to play is from uh, an encore that I did unannounced and it's really for me, an encore is a gift
3: to the audience, to the presenters, for everyone who decided to come out to the hall. Here's a little token of our appreciation.
0: I think it's that piece that uh, everybody knows. So, I mean, whereas you may go to a concert and say, "Hey, I'm listening to some nice violin music this evening," you may not know as a as a as a as an attendee every single piece, but you probably know the Hungarian dance. And and as you say, it's it's uh, it gets everybody moving a bit, you know, it's kind of and, and the change of pace in it and everything else, you know, and it's just one of those pieces that sticks with you, I think, at least certainly with me. It's been a a, a lifelong companion of always listening to it when you want to be cheered up and get a bit of, bit of blood flowing, as it were.
1: Well, let's have a listen. so the uh the funny thing for me uh, like you say, it's a little bit of dessert, it's a little bit of chocolate um it's always amazing to me uh those pieces that are dessert are a little bit of chocolate, uh but it doesn't really matter how many times you play them they're always kind of fun and they're always kind of exciting and I think one of the things uh and I think you even said it is like it's fun to watch the audience enjoy it like it's fun, even if you've played it a million times for the audience to go, oh, I love the ham Like That's just it's like a fun moment. With,
2: you know, when you stretch the tempi and when you have little dramatic pauses, is mm-hmm. the audience right there with you. And in these Hungarian dances, you have these moments where you see grandmas out in the audience doing a little shimmy, you see kids having them laugh. And that's the point, that's the point. Another popular encore that I do is John theme performance list. And it never, mm-hmm. ever, ever, ever Gets old, and you know we can call it Hollywood, which it is, and we can call it you know one of the most recognizable tunes in movie history, which it is. But it's also very evocative. It you know, just like Sam was saying earlier, if you watched Schindler's List with on, um, it would not have impact even with the material that's in the movie. It would not have the same impact without
3: the Boston and Itzhak Perlman mm-hmm. providing yes. the soundtrack.
1: Yeah, true enough. I mean, it, it, I I am such a believer in it. it doesn't matter where it comes from. I mean, Hollywood, there's, there's some certainly uh, extremely valuable cinematic movie music that is uh, beautiful. I mean, I'm thinking of the, the Joe Hisaishi uh, music for all of the uh, Miyazaki films that is on par with any of the orchestral greats. Uh, just beautifully written, well-constructed, and certainly the John Williams stuff. I mean, it's John Williams is John Williams, but it's not that he can't write a beautiful melody. He can. It's beautiful.
2: Oh, and if people knock John Williams, I say to them, how many scores can you sing of John Williams right now? I bet you could sing 10. Yes. You know, and mm-hmm. a guy not as well-known, but it's Horner. The soundtrack. Mm,
3: yes. high the, yeah.
2: the Soundtrack to The Mask of Zorro. You see these movies, and every time, I've seen Titanic or the mask of Zorro on TV. It is a powerful score and it, it, he gets it exactly right.
0: Yeah. And, and you go back through, you know, the, the, say the great days of Hollywood back into the, you know, uh, before you were born the 1970s and sixties and fifties and, and, and all the great Hollywood, com- all the poses of that time as well. And the music you get from that, you know, theme to the big country or all these kinds of things. It's, it's and it's accessible for people, I think, because they hear it in the movies, and it gets people into classical music. It gets them into it. It get they hear that, and and then they go, oh, you know what? I could actually go to a concert and hear those things. And I think that's well, kind of it's kind of the tag. So it, it's nice.
2: It's very important for the classical to be represented. How many times have we seen Bugs Bunny or animated <laughs> cartoon featuring symphonic uh, literature? Um, I think back to Sesame. Street having mm-hmm. not just Lerner Sonnenberg and Perlman on. I will never forget the episode that Perlman did, where uh, the lesson was some things that are for some are tough for others. And this little girl bounds on stage and plays violin poorly, and Mr. Perlman struggles on stage with disability and plays violin beautifully. And it really is a powerful lesson. Everybody, go out on the- and check out that clip. You know, and it yeah. for the kids that it's reaching in the living room. They're going to. Impacted, you know, when when I go to schools and I play for elementary school age kids, which is one of my favorite age groups to play mm. for because they're wide eyed, their excitement, they really get into it, and they ask questions that adults would be too nervous to ask.
3: Mr. Andrew, why do you hold the violin in the left hand and not the right? Mr. Andrew, why do you move when you
2: You know, whatever it is, and it makes you think out of the mouths of babes. But mm. I, I tell these kids, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a violin. Canister conductor when you grow up, but it matters that you are one that appreciates culture. Hmm. You no, know, I, I, I'm again not so naive to think that everybody has to like Rachmaninoff or Shostakovich or Frank. They don't. We don't all have to like country,
3: folk, rap, don't. or jazz.
2: Oh. <laughs> but being impacted by an emotional thread or a journey—well, hmm. that's just humanity.
0: Yeah it is interesting when you start you know you you say that you know people don't have to be impacted by that but actually when you when when they listen to it i think they do become impacted by it you know i think it's 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 actually getting them to listen um that that is the key thing because when they actually hear something then they go i didn't know you know and 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 then you see you know all the modern-day musicians, it's p- p- picking bits from, from classical music, and they go, "That's a great tune." Yeah, well, actually, that was you know that was Beethoven who wrote that, or Mozart, or something.
2: And if somebody think that's half the battle. I'm thinking back mm. to a performance I had the spring, where a Cacciatorean trio was on the program, mm. and one audience member came up and said, "Oh, I did not care for the Cacciatorean." I said, "I'm really not offended. I didn't write it."
0: <laughs> yes, yes. Well, we, we had we had a, a, somebody on um, one of our first podcasts we did, um, and and somebody there said, "I don't really care what people think as long as they think. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if they they could hate this piece of music, they could love this piece of music, but as long as they've thought about it and actually listened to it, then that's the important thing. It's actually doing that. That 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 that, that is that that's the important bit you need to do. So yeah."
1: The last piece that we have to listen to. Um I don't think we I, I actually don't think we've listened to any Shostakovich at all on the podcast. Uh and I think we're now almost two years into doing the podcast. Mm-hmm. We've never listened to Shostakovich, so we're we're high time to listen to some Shostakovich. But um I have a deep love for Shostakovich. Maybe we're where Sammy, uh, you have a deep love for the, the Brahms. I love Shostakovich and I remember the first uh, few Shostakoviches I heard. Um, and I remember being an undergrad and like writing a paper on Shostakovich because I was just so excited to talk about his music and talk about um that really beautiful era of Russian music that that really is so um fascinating and impassioned and and incredibly complexly written. And it's uh it's fantastic to to hear this one. So so tell us about this uh little little piece that we're going to hear. It's only about uh, two minutes long.
2: I think if there was ever a time to play Shasakova, the time is... There.
3: Now, I know I mentioned earlier that we can't scream
2: and shout from every stage about the geopolitics of various regions around the world, but we're talking about a composer who had coded messages, mm-hmm. who was vehemently anti-fascist,
3: who had the cage knocking on his door, who had the leader of the nation censoring him. And for a
2: number of reasons, we can't censor art. It is somebody's choice. If you don't like it, change the channel. If you don't like the book, put it down, but we can't censor art. And so Shostakovich for me, along with somebody as powerful as Beethoven, who of course was very aware in following Napoleon and the, the
3: bombings in Vienna, et cetera. When, when I heard that orchestras were not programmed in following invasion this
2: year, I was horrified. I thought this is absolutely the time to do this because he was anti-Kremlin.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And if there was ever a time to play those messages and his uh, defiance, now is the time. So I've always liked Shostakovich. For the I've always particularly enjoyed this piano trio and um odd number of symphonies and the violin concerto, the cello concerto, his uh, preludes, the violin uh sorry, the piano and trumpet concerto. but I think that this is a very relevant musical
0: yeah. It always amazed me how he actually survived. I know that sounds, mm-hmm. but you know i mean he he managed to somehow negotiate purges and everything and and while still creating fantastic music and and also as you say sending these these coded messages about you know the Stalin or whoever it was at the time which which they didn't even realize and, and i remember reading i think i think which symphony symphony it was of his but Apparently, Stalin loved it, and so did the people, because the people realized it was anti-Stalin, and Stalin thought it was pro-him. And I think that just goes to show how clever a clever a musician he was. I mean, was His fantastic.
2: life reads like a John Grisham novel. You can't write this. I mean, you know, we're talking about Hollywood. His life was Hollywood, and you're right, the fact that it survived into the 80s.
0: Wow. In- in- incredible. Now, let-, let me ask you about Piano Trio, because this has always fascinated me mm. a little bit. Because <clears throat> I like, I, I love this. Sorry, one of what is it? Okay, favorite. good, good. So, 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 I mean, how does a piano? I mean, in a piano trio, you've got two other people with you, uh, and you're very specifically three of you playing a quite a complicated piece, probably. So, how, how, you know, how's the dynamic of that? I mean, you know, in in an orchestra, you've got obviously the conductor who's conducting, and and then you you know you're as the soloist. If you're there as a soloist. If you're playing an individual piece, you're in charge. How, how does it work in the trio? Because I have no idea how you negotiate the responsibility. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but how it works.
2: <laughs> good question, Sam. Yes, in an orchestra, when the conductor is right, they're right. The conductor is wrong, they're right. You know, there's a hierarchy to <laughs> And you've got the conductor, you've got the concertmaster, you've got the principal players, and the soloist is sort of an honored guest. They might be, rolling out a seat for you at the dinner table, but it's still there. And the second people forget that, they will not get invited back. Now, the piano trio is a little bit different. Um, There really is no hierarchy, unless it's one of the piano trios where the the pianist has a concerto part. I think of the Mendelssohn trios, maybe the Tchaikovsky trio, where it really is, uh, the level of difficulty is much higher. but For me, this is one of the very, very greatest uh, trio. And you think about the composers who were very taken with this combination,
3: Mendelssohn, Brahms, Beethoven, Mozart, Dvorak, Shostakovich, Tchaikovsky, the early Rachmaninoff trios. And
2: it can almost sound symphonic scope, you've got the, the high melody of the violin, you've got the cello providing some resonance down there, and you've got the piano filling in everything else. And in my 20s, I was perfectly content to go out and play recitals and concertos. And in my 30s, I try to play as much chamber music as I can, because first of all, you're not practicing on your own, you're practicing with friends and colleagues that you learn from and then hanging out with them after. But there's also the nerves for me. I don't really get nervous for a piano trio performance because you're out there with friends. You share the attention. You share the spotlight. You share the music. It's much different. You know, the scariest form is unaccompanied. It's just mm. you. It's just the Bach or Paganini or Rizai or whatever you're playing. But with with the trio literature, my goodness. And it's something like the Chassacruz about to hear it really is a headbanger you feel like a rock star you can dig in you know if you don't dig into the instrument you're doing something wrong because you can't be tame this is not a piece that belongs in a glass box damn it you really have to live it
3: on stage
1: i'm so happy to hear you say that that's such a like tenet of mine that uh, these pieces are not uh any any piece of music is not supposed to be uh, put in a glass box and never touched, and we can revere them. But they're meant to be played. They're meant to be uh, dug into, enjoyed, and really experienced both as a player and as a as and as an audience member. Uh, and I think Shostakovich is such a great example of that. It's such emotional and um, exciting music that it begs to be like dug into. It really doesn't work if you don't dig I'm into it. And
2: it's this macabre element, you know, third movement sounds like a Kaddish from a synagogue ceremony. The final movement, the concentration camp in Siberia, where the prisoners were forced to dance over the grave of their loved ones. I mean, it's Macabre and the, the anti-government. You know, again, this is why we program this man. Now, I don't necessarily want to hear all Shostakovich on the program all the time. That would be depressing. You know, we're not going to see a, Susan Sarandon tragedy marathon on TV with a box of Kleenex all day long. No, no, no. You need something uplifting too. But this trio is absolutely a desert Island.
0: Mm. And it's funny. You always mentioned, you mentioned both of this sort of macabre feeling for Shostakovich, because I, I always feel that even in Shostakovich's lightest moments, he has lighter moments. (laughs) There's always this sense that you could end up somewhere quite quite dark very, very quickly, Uh, you know, and and the sudden change. And I guess this is, again, you know, what we've seen geopolitically is that we're all going along and it's nice and sunny. And then 20 minutes later, it's that we're in the darkness again.
3: However good we think we
2: have it. And we do. We absolutely, you know, the three of us live in First World Nation. We have to be cognizant of those that live in fear and that cannot speak out and i think about in america which is a beautiful country maybe a flawed in some ways but a beautiful country that
3: we can speak out and have these conversations without fear of execution imprisonment or death
0: hmm. well let's listen to the shostakovich i think and then we'll maybe chat a bit more about uh geopolitical situation or or whatever else so let's we'll try and sort that out anyway here's here's the Shostakovich
1: I also think it's important to play Shostakovich, I, and I think it's, uh, for, for a lot of the same, I mean, this is my musicologist hat, but we we have to understand who Shostakovich was to understand why it's important to play Shostakovich, and it's uh, important to know his life and history and what he stood for at the time, and, and the way he understood it in his contemporary brain, that he was fighting fascism, and he was very much a victim of fascism, and that is relevant to now and I think this is the the thing that I and i'll I'll say I lose the thread often again as like somebody who doesn't live in uh classical capital C classical world a lot um, but I forget that there is a very real world now relevance to these composers and that uh, a lot of the time uh, because I live in more new music world I think do we need to play Sha You've heard so much coach Do I need to listen to Beethoven again? Um, do I need to listen to Tchaik? We do. We, we absolutely do those need to listen canon. to. It.
2: You know that those symphonies and chamber music are the canon of this industry. And so when folks say we're going to get Beethoven a break, well, that's much of the canon. We can't do that, but we can make room for those that are mm-hmm. living right. I'm so glad you mentioned it, Jacob. I have a very talented friend, Evan Fine, in New York City, who has written me a concerto, nada. And all we can do is add to the repertoire, give the airings, um,
3: we can air out pieces from underrepresented groups. I think about Sir Joseph Ballone, who was the son of a Senegalese slave,
2: uh Guadeloupe plantation, and he ended up sharing a roof with Mozart one summer and was a probable lover of Marie Antoinette and was wealthy and good looking and the best swordsman in Europe. And after he passed, you know, for 150 years, nobody knew his name, nobody played his music. And I'm not saying he's going to be on every last program, but pair him with Mozart. Look at the context there. You know, there was a record that came out recently of the Clara Schumann piano concerto alongside Roberts.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And again, Maybe the Clara Schumann concerto is not as um, profound, but it doesn't need to. Be. Six, she wrote it. She was clearly a badass. She was a mother of seven. She was touring. Um, she was advising Brahms on his music, and she had a syphilitic, unwell husband. I mean, he was doing it, you know.
0: And I, I, I mean, I think this is a this is an important point. I mean, you know, if you look at like women composers as a good example, we you know the world has kind of until very recently probably forgotten a lot of them as you say like Clara schumann i mean you know some fantastic movie and there's a whole load of people going back to the various very earliest music you know um uh, hildegard uh, von i can't remember Dingham,
3: yes.
0: yeah i mean you know right back to that you know yet yet we've kind of you know gone back and you know we obviously have, uh, the number of fantastic uh, gay composers that have been there, that have all been, you know, shut off, and this, and it was only in the nineteen, I don't know, forties that we start anybody started to f- understand this, and of course, it's still a problem today, and and we see this, it's a continual, and and so we, I'm getting on my soapbox here, sorry, um, I, I mean, I think we need to we need to tell the stories of these people. That's the thing, it's the music and the story of them, I think is important.
2: Well, and you shine a spotlight on them and you let people, you let the audiences and the orchestras make the decision if they're liked. I don't love every last opus number of Mozart's. There are six hundred twenty-six published. Of course, <laughs> a lot of it is genius and it's, you can't even comprehend the gifts that this guy had. But, you know, his batting average wasn't a thousand. But a funny story about Hild- Hildegard von Bingen, I was in an early music class undergrad and that's just a little off color but whatever and I had this wonderful professor
3: who happened to be lesbian and Hildegard von Bingen is the first to depict in writing the female orgasm and so mm-hmm. I quoted her quote on this particular
2: <laughs> wondrous activity and suffice it to say I had a great mark on the
0: <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good I, I mean one of the things i noticed in your in your biography um was that you do do a lot of outreach activities i mean you said you've been to schools You said you know you you do things with the OTPT community you 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 get out there and do things um i i mean uh, do you find that your position as a as a as a as a well-known musician has helped that
2: It's funny you bring that up. I, in my earliest days of performing, I had somebody on my team who said to me, if you come out, you will never get hired again. Well, you know, with my personality and being a Gemini and being outgoing, I thought, well, I have to come out now. And I had more work than ever when I did that. But for a
3: time, I was the only out classical violin on the circuit. Wow. And I'm not saying that as a point of pride. I'm saying
2: that as it was unique. And mm-hmm. now, folks come out on their own time. Their it's their journey. It's my journey,
3: and someone else is theirs. But for a few years, I don't think there was no, was out was mm-hmm. talking out
2: magazine and and you know going on Sirius XM the Derek and Romaine show and and. Pride events. I'm the first classical artist, classical musician to play at a US Pride event. And again, I wasn't doing it to be the first or to have notoriety. Mm-hmm. I'm doing it so that some kid coming up can do. And now there are a lot more open, and we're only talking the last. But mm-hmm. 15 years mm-hmm. ago, even artists who were talked about as probably gay and probably having a partner,
3: they weren't doing that. Why not sure again, but
0: yeah, although I think it is I mean I think that we're going to get back to geopolitics here. I think that it is getting harder at the moment, certainly in in parts of the world for people to actually come out in a way, you know obviously in in certain countries it's it's impossible, but even in you know western europe the u k and America, you know it's it, it, it's not as easy at the moment, you know. There is this great negativity around around the LGBT community, and and we're back at the fascism again in Shostakovich. It's it's it's, it's you you can never rest against it, unfortunately.
2: And I wonder on the plus side, how many engagements I did end up having with mm. LGBT conductors presenters, and then on the other side, how many I lost. Lost. I think of um, one engagement that i that was dangled in front of me for a country that is vehemently yeah. anti
3: gay and my partner said go it's just not yeah. worth it it's exactly right about that yeah yeah
0: yes and and i mean i think that actually you know my view is that we should i mean we have to we have to support people in that environment and and actually going there and giving legitimacy to to an, or a regime that actually puts people in prison kills them and all this kind of thing well, i just i don't see i could never do that and i i, I think it's you know i i anyway mm-hmm. go to your politics we're going to go up on that one apologies if, jacob get us back onto music you know, No, I'm sorry, sorry
3: i don't think that somebody's such most important thing about uh we all have so much that we offer. But if I'm sitting down with somebody
2: about my life, you know, I can't neglect my partner. I can't neglect, you know, going to clubs on the weekends. just have to be authentic to you. And that doesn't impact my musical playing uh, performance. But if I can play these and Green Pride events, if I can play Chopin Nocturne on an LGBT radio station, well, there's a different audience there, first of all. And guess what? They probably go to the ballet, opera, and musical mm-hmm. theater, especially musical theater. You know, and yes. you just have to represent the community the best way you can when when mm-hmm. talking about yourself and talking about what you love. I don't uh, think I, it mean, makes I, mean, I mean, like Tchaikovsky or Sassons, uh You know, these gay composers differently, but I was proud to play the Barber Concerto, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. And you know, Tchaikovsky probably committed suicide when he took that drink at the age of fifty-three mm. to cover a scandal that was beginning.
3: Maybe mm. we would have had five more symphonies. Maybe we would have yeah. had five more. But we don't know.
0: I mean, I mean, I'm I, I occasionally get interviewed in my own job and this kind of thing, and and it, it always seems as if the first question people ask is about me being trans. They never, you know, and, it, and, and I keep trying to say to them that the, the least in, interesting thing about me is that I'm trans. You know, I have other things in my life which are much more interested in that. This is just who I am. But people seem kind of fascinated, obsessed, I don't know the word, with trying to understand sexuality and gender and these kinds of things. And, and, it, and it kind of sometimes gets in the way of people. I think you know making connections in a way. They, the people. Well, are that we of, all
2: you know... believe the same way, we all have tears. We yeah. all have laughter. We all get older. Yeah. yeah. We all yeah. need human interaction. You know, the second people realize that we all have to get along with our neighbors and our friends and our colleagues, the world's.
3: And to accept differences, it's
2: it's wonderful when you go to a bar or the gym sauna or an orchestra rehearsal. And you've got folks in the room
3: who don't think like you, don't worship like you, aren't your generation, Um, and, uh, you know, might be immigrants,
2: you might be the immigrants, and you leave as gentlemen, you leave shaking hands, you leave after a polite discussion. I think, why doesn't this happen in Washington? We all just left Mm -hmm. as gentlemen. Can't we shake hands and uh, agree to disagree?
0: Now I do have to ask one more question about something that was on your biography, dancing with the stars. It said, yeah, come on, you have to explain this one. Cause it was on there dancing with the stars. We need to know.
4: Okay.
2: I am a better violinist than I am dancer. I can <laughs> let you know that unequivocally.
3: No, I did
2: Pittsburgh's dance with the stars about a decade ago and I had the most fun. It was, nerve-wracking, you know, and I can memorize a 30-minute concerto, but a two-and-a-half-minute dance routine that had yeah. possibly had to hang out with my wonderful partner, Sandra, who was patient and
3: guided me through that, and she really wanted to win, and we didn't, I hate to say, <laughs> but, you know, we had, let the,
2: the cast Nets, and we had Rihanna Diamonds, you know, and a live audience, and there I am, the best with no shirt underneath, and it a spray tan and a bright lime green <laughs> scarf belt thingy tight pants. I loved it. And I hope that the, the ABC show would come call in one day. I would love that. But it was it was something that was a little frightening, but I ran towards it. I'm glad I did it. Just like anything else. It might be a little bit different. I think about George Crumb's Black Angels that I did mm-hmm. as a kid. And for those that don't know, you've got Japanese words. Score. You've got tuned wine glasses. You've got bass bows creating sounds, and you look at it. It looks like hieroglyphics. It, you think, mm. of course, I know how to play the violin, and then you're looking at a George Crumb score with notes of different <laughs> sizes and disappearing, and, and you're chanting while playing, and you think, my oh. the left side of my brain can't even comprehend this, um, but then you finish and you think. So much better
1: on the other side. <laughs> well, maybe what a what a fantastic uh, way to wrap up with that with that sentiment that we are better on the other side. Run towards it, uh, experience the the new and the weird. It's much more fun that way. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Andrew. It's been such a lovely chat, um, and uh, I sincerely hope when people in whatever city you happen to be in uh our near near concert of yours that they go see you
2: and i hope to see
1: you you
0: in
2: Halifax. and hope to see you sam in sweden two places i have not yet been to but come come
0: come to sweden give me a give me a call and we'll meet up and we'll go and find somewhere to practice your dancing
2: i love that let's do
3: it
0: we'll do that thanks ever so So that's all for this episode. You've been listening to the Classical Queer Podcast and Jake and I look forward to being with you next month. The incidental music is courtesy of Jared Miller and the show was produced by Samantha Jane.